Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 132, Buddhist Chaplaincy, Buddhist Youth. This week, we're joined by Reverend Danny Fisher, the program coordinator for University of the West's Buddhist Chaplaincy Program. We speak with him about Buddhist chaplaincy, plus what challenges and opportunities young Buddhists encounter in today's world. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. We're back again. We just finished recording a Geeks of the Roundtable discussion with our guest today, Reverend Danny Fisher. How you doing, Vince? Hey, Danny. <laughs> hey, Vince. Good to have you here again. Thank you. Well, we've wanted to talk to you for a while. We've been kind of informal internet buddies, I'd That's say. Right. And in fact, our ships crossed when you were finishing up your MDiv at Naropa, <laughs> and I was finishing up my undergrad there. We saw each other on campus a lot, yeah. but we never got to actually talk. But I remembered you, you know, so when Buddhist Geeks first started, I was like, oh, Vince, because, you know, you were just always good for a nod and a smile and i just you know, i thought seemed like a nice guy so yeah and i got to know your wife who worked on the staff in Europa, yep. who has the patience of a saint i would like to add so that's very true yeah. i can attest to that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i just wanted to share a little bit of your your history and your background just to contextualize this conversation for the listeners and just to say that first you got your uh, master's divinity at naropa mm-hmm. and that program is focused primarily on buddhist chaplaincy yeah Yes. And then you went on to become an ordained Buddhist chaplain. Mm-hmm. And recently you took on this position at University of the West, which is one of the few Buddhist-inspired universities here in the West. It's probably one of the handful, I guess. Yeah. And you're now the coordinator of the Buddhist chaplaincy program there, yeah. which basically means you're doing both administrative type stuff and you're also teaching quite a few classes, yeah? Yeah. Um, since I've started work in April, my responsibilities have been mostly administrative and obviously those will continue but once the fall starts i'll be teaching the sort of chaplaincy specific courses to our first cohort and obviously when we take on a second and a third and so forth cohort we'll need more adjuncts more people but right now i'm just sort of kind of the the lone guy but obviously our religious studies faculty are teaching the religious studies courses that our students need for the program as well so i i'm certainly not alone exactly but in the just the chaplaincy specific piece it's it's just me right now and is the mdiv program new there the mdiv program is new we got approval for it last spring and they began sort of the search for this position the coordinator position um in the winter of this past year and then i was hired and i started in april so yeah it's it's a new program this will be our first cohort this fall very cool. So that's exciting. Yeah, and we, we've met the students who are coming in, and they've been to campus for interviews and things, and I'm very excited. It's a really eclectic group, and they show a lot of promise, this group, so I'm very excited. To have very cool. Yeah. And because most people, I'm not sure, are familiar with like a Buddhist chaplaincy programs like. I mean, people have heard about certainly Christian chaplaincy programs, and usually when you hear the, the term Master Divinity, you think of particularly a Christian-based education program. But I was wondering if you could say a little bit, what is it like being a student in a master's of divinity program that's Buddhist based? In a lot of other places, you 
you have Master of Divinity students who might go a number of different directions. You know, they might be interested in pastoral theology. They might be interested in becoming parish priests or ministers, things like that. I think the reason that there's been an emphasis on chaplaincy kind of starts with what I think was a very intelligent decision by Naropa when they started their program, realizing that chaplaincy is a path for Buddhist practitioners to actually have a career at the moment, that there are jobs here, things to do. There's not maybe an infrastructure in a lot of places to support, you know, like, for example, Methodist ministers could have a career as a Methodist minister. It's not so clear that that's as true with Buddhist clergy or lay teachers and things like that. Your last interview with Norman Fisher, you know, that came up a little bit. So I think that really begins with Naropa kind of having the foresight to see if we're going to start a program like this, we need to think very carefully about where are we directing these people in terms of work. And obviously they also had a lot of students who were interested in this kind of work. And so that was very directive for them um, having a body of students who said, you know, we're very interested in this work and we'd like the university to sort of think about it a little bit. But as you say, yes, for the most part, you know, Master Divinity programs have been very oriented around the Judeo-Christian religious traditions in this country. So one of the values of having programs like U-West's and Naropa's and the one at the Institute for Buddhist Studies, and also Harvard has sort of an unofficial track right now in their MDiv program for, for Buddhists at the Harvard Divinity School. One of the values of having programs like that is it allows the students to learn in a milieu that's more comfortable for them, that's going to kind of honor their practice more directly than one that's maybe ecumenical or you have to kind of carve out a niche or a community in those areas. So it's really a wonderful thing, I think, that these universities have have started to do this. It's so the responsibilities of chaplaincy are the same whether you're a Christian, a Buddhist, a Jew, a Muslim, non-religious, whatever. But it's nice to have the training that has a special eye on on where you're coming from. I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about where this notion of being of aid to people, both in terms of helping, for instance, with a hospice. Uh, there's a lot of Buddhist chaplains, I understand, that go into the death and dying work. Yeah. And then other areas like you mentioned being a minister, being a community leader or a Dharma leader. I'm wondering where the emphasis on taking care of people comes from or where, where we could trace it back in the Buddhist tradition um, because in the Christian tradition, it's really obvious that, that focus on serving your fellow fellow man or fellow human, it's really pretty clear. But in the Buddhist tradition, it's maybe a little less clear. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about the history of where chaplaincy in the Buddhist tradition comes from. Yeah, I mean, I think it sort of depends on the tradition you're coming from in a lot of ways. But there's a lot of interesting literature across the spectrum that's useful to people. You know, I've spent some time looking at a few specific texts. One is the Girmananda Sutta, which is in the Pali Canon, and it involves uh, Ananda coming to the Buddha and saying, there's someone who's sick, what should I do in visiting them? What should I say? How should I be? You know, so that's that's a really interesting text to look at. I'm not sure how useful it is for maybe the responsibilities of professional chaplaincy, which are a little different. I mean, I think the presumption in something like that is that you would be attending to another Buddhist whereas professional chaplaincy has an attention placed on the spiritual, religious, cultural, and psychological values of the people you're working with. No matter what their background is. No matter what their background is. So you sort of start there with that frame of reference as opposed to imposing your own. Also, you know, you see things like, you know, the Vimalakirti Sutra is used by Judas Simmer Brown at Naropa for sort of thinking about engaged Buddhism and also the chaplaincy program. 
so I mean, I think that's a great text. It has some kind of starts with this whole story of no one wanting to go and visit this very wise, sick bodhisattva. And, you know, you see a lot of literature in the Tibetan tradition, most famously the Tibetan Book of the Dead, about how to sort of guide someone who's going through the experience of dying. So, you know, there's a lot of literature across the, mm. the spectrum of traditions. And in terms of more contemporary literature, a lot of Shin Buddhist practitioners have been very prolific in terms of writing about this stuff and very carefully. And, you know, so they find a lot in their theology that's helpful in terms of doing this work. Buddhist studies, Buddhism in general is very, you know, text oriented. And so, you know, mm. there's a lot of literature out there. What brought you personally into the Masters of Divinity track and becoming a Buddhist chaplain? Like, it's hard to imagine someone growing up and going, I want to be a Buddhist chaplain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I started in college studying film, but was not a very happy person, I think, in terms of just at a very basic level. I was terrified of things like impermanence and death and had a very hard time even thinking about them without getting very anxious and sort of nervous. And so at 19, I decided, you know, this is too old to, to have this trouble. And so I started doing a lot of reading and research and which eventually led to, to Buddhism. And so I got very, very interested in Buddhism and these questions that I was asking myself. And I realized I was a little bit more interested in that than film. So I started studying religion, but I think I had more of a personal interest in it. So the work that I wanted to do was more of a normative nature. And I was very lucky at Denison University where I went to school to study with a man named John Court, who realized this and wanted to kind of help me in my learning that way. So we did you know, independent study on engaged Buddhism. And I went to India for a semester and studied in a Buddhist monastery. And so he was wonderful about sort of not trying to make me something I wasn't. You know, he knew that my interest in it was not as an academic, but as a practitioner. And so when I left, you know, I had a college, I had a lot of thinking to do about where to go and what to do. And I felt a very strong urge to do something to benefit other beings. But at the same time, I knew I didn't want to do something like a social work program or counseling psychology program because there wouldn't be enough Buddhism in it. But at the same time, I knew I didn't want to do a Buddhist studies program because it is not necessarily gearing practitioners to go into service professions or mm -hmm. things like that. You know, although certainly education is a service. And the MDiv program in Europa had, I think, started the year I graduated from college. So I was aware of it, but there were a lot of complicating factors and I sort of didn't go right away and so I taught school for a couple of years and kind of discerned, you know, is this what I want to do, what I want to try? And, you know, I did some reading about chaplaincy so that I really understood what it was before I sort of dove into it. And at the end of two years, I, I thought, yeah, I want to do this. And then I went to Naropa and fell in love, of course. Mm. So met Victoria Howard and Judith Summer Brown when I came out and, you know, was really impressed by both of them. And so. Nice. Yeah. And outside of being a chaplain, you're also... I would say you're something of an emerging voice in the kind of Buddhist, young Buddhist world. If you say so, Fitz. I do. If I say so, <laughs> it's so. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, you have a blog that's well-read and people mention it a lot. You're one of the more popular Buddhist bloggers out there. And actually people, if they want to check it out, it's at uh, chaplaindanny.blogspot.com. Yeah. So given this kind of unique position you're in, one of the younger Buddhists who's got their stuff kind of going out there in different ways... I thought it'd be interesting to talk about being a young Buddhist and what kinds of issues young Buddhists contend with these days. If you had any things to offer in that regard, and then maybe we can just 
talk about it a little bit because yeah. I presume there are a lot of younger Buddhists listening. You know, there's there's something about the Buddhist community widely in America. It feels like there are people, whether they're convert Buddhists or people who've come to Buddhism as part of their culture that they've been raised in, they don't communicate very well together. And that seems very important to me, especially as all these different groups and communities try to find their way. It seems like we have to be better about doing this together. By and large, the Buddhist media, I think, doesn't get enough credit for really the efforts and how much they're doing. But at the same time, there is a sense of dissatisfaction from different communities. And I've been very interested in a lot of feedback from people about feeling like whether it's my Buddhist community is not being represented or convert Buddhists are overrepresented and Asian Buddhists not represented enough or Asian American Buddhists not represented enough. These things strike me as interesting and, you know, there may be things to look at more closely or iron out, but it seems to me that there's some dissatisfaction in different camps about different things. And it would be very helpful if we figured out ways to just talk. You know, I think we need to do more in terms of getting off the cushions in a lot of ways. My friend Jennifer Block, who works at the Zen Hospice Project, you know, she talks about engaged Buddhism that way as, you know, being very important to get off the cushion and out of the temple or Dharma Center. And I think engagement is, you know, important, obviously, but also engagement with one another. So these intra-faith meetings, I think, are, are very important because it's distressing to me to hear people feeling like they're not being heard or represented or worse demeaned or things like that. And as I said, it, it may be that there are things that aren't being seen or aren't being heard or not being understood properly, but I, I see some of that in my life, you know, that I, I have friends who are involved in communities and maybe look down their nose at other communities, you know, whether, if, you know, this is just a hypothetical, but, you know, Tibetan practitioners looking down their nose at Theravada practitioners or, you know, hypothetical, vice versa. You know? <laughs> so, you know, you, you hear little things like that. And, you know, when I was ordained, it was through the Buddhist Sangha Council of Southern California did it. And they're an ecumenical Buddhist group. And part of the, the charge to us as ministers was to be good neighbors. And wherever we find ourselves living, you know, find out what we can do to help Buddhist communities that are there. Obviously, it's important to build our own communities, but if there's a temple that needs help rebuilding, help them. There's a community that they need something from the outside, do what you can to help them. And, and I take that very seriously as part of the, the charge of that. And so, I'd like to see more thinking outside of our own individual communities and traditions and, and more working together. So that's kind of a long answer to the question, but that strikes me as a, a very big thing right now mm. is that I think we have a responsibility to kind of nip some of these problems in the bud before it gets too far down the line. And I think we can do it. I mean, here I am on a podcast about geeky issues in Buddhism. That's pretty cool. So there's a lot of stuff happening right now that I think gives us an opportunity to think about nuance and detail and differences among communities and areas for growth together and talking with one another. So, mm. Yeah. Do you think as young Buddhists, I mean, one of the things I've noticed for myself and friends, people that I've gone to school with or practice with, one of the, the strange tensions I've noticed is that it's not really clear what you would do with months or years of training and study. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you kind of, touched on this when you talked about your reasons for doing the MDiv program and why you chose not to do a professional Buddhist training. But I'm wondering if one of the issues I've noticed as a young Buddhist is it's not really clear how that training in meditation or in study 
or even an engagement with the community translates into how to live in the West in terms of career and in terms of livelihood. Uh, yeah. There seems to be a weird gap there that I've been noticing. And I'm wondering uh, if you've noticed the same. Yeah. I mean, I think, and you know, th- this occurred to me when we were working on the ad that you very kindly put on your show for our program, you know, that it strikes me that that can be a selling point for these chaplaincy programs is it's, it's a way into a career. But of course, not everyone wants to take on that career. Not everyone may be suited for that career. So, you know, it becomes important to think about other other ways of, of making a living. And I'm not sure about it either, you know, yeah. um, it, because, you know, I see people doing things that I think represent great success in terms of being a teacher or being clergy, you know, in Buddhism in the United States. And I see also that there are struggles with having a livelihood and, you know, putting food on the table and paying the rent and, and all that. And I'm not sure if it's an organizational problem or if it's uh, just pointing to the fact that we're a very small community still in the United States. Convert and cultural Buddhists together, you know, represent 1% of the religious population of this country, according to the Pew Forum. There's some issues in their research methodology. They only ask questions in English and Spanish, so that leaves out a lot of Asian Americans who might only be able to have the interview in their native language. But at the same time, I think we're not looking at a number that's much higher, even if we had a perfect sampling. So it's not a very large market. There's not a lot of room for people to have the level of success of some people. And uh, as we were saying in the last podcast, even some of the more famous and busy and well-respected Buddhist teachers, there's signs that it's not still not easy, you know, to, to make a living. My dear friend Kabutsu Malone, who is head of the Engage Zen Foundation, you know, visited Sing Sing thousands of times, you know, in his life, visiting with prisoners and all this. And when I first encountered his work and his writing, I presumed he must have figured this out. He must know how to do this professionally. But, you know, at the same time, he's ma- he was making a living as an engineer. I don't know how he did it all, but he, he did. And those are the kinds of things that I think are a little scary and disconcerting when we, when we know these things, that even the, the great teachers, the ones who are doing a lot of work, often have to augment that work with, you know, something that's not so much related dharmic thing yeah yeah that it's an interesting i mean we've talked to numerous teachers and people about this very issue and question i always have is if someone's really passionate like they really want to make buddhist training and practice a huge part of their life their profession you could say there are not that many avenues that they have and i think this represents a minority maybe of people into Buddhism in general, but it's still, it's an important minority because those are the people that then are able to offer the gifts they receive from the training back to others. It seems like there are lots of people doing cool things. Like we talked to Norman Fisher and this is something we discussed uh, for the Geeks of the Roundtable, mm-hmm. which you mentioned. And it seems like there are people doing certain things, like he's offering kind of secular Buddhist teachings to organizations and companies and groups of people. And that seems like one possible avenue. And at the same time, I guess I have a question. If there's a young Buddhist that really wants to, say, do a year of retreat training or something mm-hmm. like that, there's just not really that many uh, ways to, to do it right now without being independently wealthy. Yeah, so and and, and we're, you know, we live in a um, society that has maybe difficulty understanding the, why someone would need to take three months off to go, can't you break it up and do it on the weekends or, you know, right. whatever. So, I mean, it's very difficult that way in terms of, if you want to have this very 
robust meditation practice can be very difficult to hold a real job and yeah. do it in a lot of ways. And yep. So you, you already have problems like that to begin with, and then even thinking about trying to make a career out of it is is interesting. And even things like spiritual writing, I know there are people who have trouble making a living doing that, even if they publish regularly. Sure, so, sure. Yeah. And I don't mean to make it all sound dour. I mean, I know there are people yeah, yeah. who do make a good living, but they're fewer and further between in a way. So, yeah. yeah, and there are people that are finding ways to do intensive retreat. I mean, myself, I certainly partake in the generosity of the retreat centers that offer scholarships to younger people. And there are a lot of people doing a lot of good things to make these sorts of things accessible, even given the conditions we have here in our culture, which are not, like you're saying, the nicest for people that want to live a, a very robust interior life because yeah. it doesn't necessarily have immediate, obvious benefits in the exterior yeah. world. I mean, it's not contributing necessarily to any company's bottom line. Or, I mean, my meditation practice certainly hasn't produced any huge profits <laughs> for the companies I've worked for. Not yet. Not yet, yeah. man. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I guess the I wanted to talk about the corollary of this too, this, this young Buddhists have obviously these issues that they have to face, especially if they want to be really serious about Buddhist practice. But there also seem to be a lot of opportunities that we have as young Buddhists. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you have any insights in terms of what the opportunities you see are, maybe even that are different from what we might have if we lived in Asia, for instance. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Buddhism has been a phenomenon in the United States, you know, since as long as we've had Asian immigrants here. People often speak of the boom, you know, at the turn of the century and then sort of in the middle of the century with Zen and then later Tibetan Buddhism coming to the United States. So we're, we're you know, at a point where it's very young. And I think that's, on the one hand, we have trouble like we've been discussing, you know, but on the other hand, it's really exciting to be on the ground floor of things. And often communities are small enough that even the youngest among them have a great voice in thinking about organization and how to do things. And so I think... There's a lot of opportunity to be part of the development of American Buddhism. I mean, mm. you know, I've, I've been a practicing Buddhist for a little over 10 years. And I would say it was very quickly in my getting interested and involved in things that I started to feel like I have a vote here, you know, or I, I'm, it's possible for me to participate in things like writing for Tricycle or coming on the Buddhist Geek Show now and, you know, things like that. So it, it's often very surprising once you get involved how quickly you can become part of the phenomenon. So I think that's an exciting thing. There's a kind of access and opportunity for sharing that, you know, is maybe difficult in other traditions that have had a chance to get a foothold here a lot longer, things like that. So that's very exciting. And I think young people in particular, I've been very heartened by a lot of interest in politics and activism that we've seen in the last couple of years with, with young people. So I think they can be great advocates and allies for certain kinds of changes that I think, you know, would benefit Buddhists everywhere, thinking more about the role of women in Buddhism, thinking more about being inclusive of all kinds of diversity, you know, people with different sexual orientations and, you know, thinking about like what I had said before about better communication between communities. So I think I'm expecting, I don't think, I expect that young people who are involved in Buddhism will be of a great service this way in terms of seeing that things become a little bit better in terms of including a, a wide range of voices and opinions and backgrounds and experiences and things like that. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that work done.
Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.